The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Hello there, I'm Austin Bristow and you're listening to On The List. For episode 39 on Saturday, April 8th, I'm joined by pitchless writer Matt Kovach. Matt, thanks for joining me. Ah, glad to be here. Glad to have you. Now, for those of you who are also glad to be here, each week I am joined by a member of our pitcherless staff. We like to talk baseball, discuss what they've been working on recently, and we do a mailbag session at the end where we answer your questions. You can send those over to me on Twitter. I am at Bristowski. Or better yet, I ask every week for those questions in our PL Plus Discord server. You can hop in there and get them to me much easier that way. Now, Matt, where can the people find you on Twitter? On Twitter, I'm at Sid Finch, S-I-D-D-F-I-N-C-H. You can find me there, and every morning I've been publishing a history list lesson for everybody there, so um, easy to find and easy to bug. Very nice. I got to ask, is there a story behind Sid Finch? Just happens to be when I was signing up, I my original initials that I used didn't be there. So I just happened to be re- researching about George Plimpton and his April Fool's hoax, Sid Finch. So it was available and I grabbed it. That's awesome. Love that. Now, Matt here is essentially considered to be our pitcher list historian. Uh, you, you mainly specialize in writing articles for our across the seam section where you will dig deep into the annals of baseball history and bring out the most interesting stories that for whatever reason have fallen to the wayside and people don't know of. I have thoroughly enjoyed some of the strange and fascinating uh, topics that you uncover. So Matt, I am very excited to get into some of that, but first yeah, talk about the man behind the byline. So let's throw it off with just a nice open-ended question here. Just tell me a bit about yourself, Matt. Well, um, I, I was born on July 4th, 1970. So I think part of the reason I'm the historian here is because I think I'm the oldest one. Uh, <laughs> Um, but uh, I, I'm a longtime resident of uh, Northeast Ohio. I live in a little town called Avon Lake, where uh, we have one of the last remaining 
living members of the 1954 Cleveland Indians uh, World Series team. He, he, he lives in our town. His name's, uh, name's uh, Dick Tomanek. He was a left-handed pitcher. Unfortunately, the next year they got another left-handed pitcher called Herb Score, so uh, he didn't uh, walk in for their plans. I have uh, been a baseball, a sports fan and a baseball fan since I was uh, a very, very young man. I just started playing Little League when I was four or five, lied about my age so I could play Little League. (laughs) (laughs) And um, I just... Uh, when I started playing, I grew up in Cleveland, and of course, we did not have very good teams back then, but we had a collection of characters, um, and uh, I got really excited about um, s- some of the stories and everything around there. Uh, there's uh, the, We had a uh, rookie of the league, um, rookie American League rookie of the year was Joe Charbonneau, and he lived in Avon Lake when he was the rookie of the year. And you get to hear all kinds of stories about him. He, he, he was a character, and he still is, and he's still probably one of the nicest people you can ever meet. Um, so I got started getting really interested about baseball history. And, and as I wrote a couple weeks ago um, in high school, I had to learn something by Walt Whitman. And I noticed that in Leaves of Grass, the edition that we have, he mentioned baseball. And it was from 1846. Yep. And that's when I really said, wait, there was, and, and you know, he, he was writing to his friends about baseball. So, I mean, he, he was one of us. <laughs> he was a baseball fan and baseball had only been around. So I, how did he learn about baseball? It wasn't invented Wait, It was invented in 1845. And so I started getting into that really got me into the history and the stories. Um, and my dad had this had some friends that he worked with. And one of those was a guy called Ace. Terrific guy. But what he used to do is skip school, take the train down to League Park, which was the Indian Cleveland's ballpark until about 1932. Um, He would skip school and go to a game. He's seen like Bob Feller and Lou Gehrig and, you know, some of these guys. and And he told these stories and he was a wonderful storyteller. So it just got you so interested about, the things that you didn't hear about. Then we were lucky enough. I had Herb Score, as, um, who was a rookie of the year in 1955, was the announcer for the radio announcer for uh, Cleveland. And that was back, guys, some people don't remember when you might only be able to watch 50, 60 games. So Herb Score was a terrific storyteller. And he played with Bob Feller, Mark Garcia, early win. Rocky Calavito was his best friend. So he, he would tell these stories just about there and the ones you didn't read about in books. And those are the ones that I, I like to go out and find, you know, like a, a Yankees player that beat an ostrich in a spaghetti eating contest in 1919, 11 plates, the ostrich passed out. Um, <laughs> Ping Bodhi did not. He was on to number 12. I was um, going to say, this is, a, this is far too specific to be just a for instance. Al <laughs> was my uh, history lesson for this morning on Twitter. That's so The one good. I've been saving. So it, it, it's just those stories. I enjoy stats. I love looking at stats. But I just look at things a little bit different way. Maybe it comes from spending too much time um, after I got out of school and then studying philosophy and 
do, doing things like that, or maybe it's just because some some of that stuff's more interesting. That when I started to write, I was looking at um, things like the spitball. I, I I spent ten years researching the spitball, and wow, it got to the point where before you started having um, you know like you know Emblem doing all their you know F, pitch FX and that. I was pretty good at guessing who was throwing. Um, and I got to talk to some really interesting people. I, you know, had a conversation with Gaylord Perry and a, another gentleman by the name of Dave Baldwin that was a professional pitcher um, that admitted to trying to throw the spitball. And he gave me stories and I got pretty good. And I just said, you know, this is really interesting stuff. This is sometimes a little better than when uh, Sabermetrics and Moneyball is coming out. That's kind of economics. Yeah, this is this is history. Um, and then when I learned things like that, there was an openly gay player in the Major League Baseball in the seventies, um, really? Glenn Burke, and he invented the high five. And um, you know, it's 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 finding that stuff out, and then seeing how that w- works into history is is what I find kind of exciting. And everybody else is better at math and everything than I am, so. Um, I, I let the smart people do that stuff. And then I like to look back and say, you know how this works? You know, if, if you look back, there was a guy for the White Sox that played for 10 years and the lowest he ever, his on-base percentage was, was 399.4. So in the fifth, in the forties and the fifties, he got on base 400% of, you know, his 400 was his on-base percentage. And you're like, this guy would be perfect in this day and age. Wow. That's wild. So th- there's just these really interesting things, and I like to try to bring them back. I, I don't get nostalgic for the for the game because, like, you know, had somebody tell me they wanted the games to be back like they were in the 30s, and I, I just looked directly right at them, and I said, so you don't want black people to play? Yeah. Because that's part of what it is. And, um, they're like, well, no, no, I'm not saying that. And I go, well, that was the 30s. <laughs> yeah. You know? So it, that's the way I like, but and that's why I've always looked about football. It, it's funny for other sports like basketball and uh, football. I'm just a fan. I like to look at it. You know, I'll listen to it. I just, I don't get into the history as much sure. um, as and the stories uh, that I do, except for the fact that I'm finding out that there's a heck of a lot of baseball players that also play basketball. <laughs> Very true. That definitely seems to be a nice little uh, crossover there. So as you've been calling out names, I've done my best to pull up a few baseball reference things here. The only one that I was able to properly pull up on time, you mentioned Herb Score, the rookie of the year in 55. Mm -hmm. Uh, Heck of a start to his career at 22 and 23. His first two seasons were incredible. Uh, 32 games started in 55 here. 227 and a third innings, 245 strikeouts back in 55. That's pretty lovely. He also walked 154 batters. <laughs> but so that that was on his way to his rookie of the year. The next year, a 2.53 ERA uh, in 33 games started, 249 innings pitched, 263 strikeouts, only 129 walks that year. So he got him down. He was learning how to pitch. He was also only exactly. 23 years old at that time. So 
Yeah, but something must have happened between his uh, between his 23-year-old season 24 because after that, he was legitimately never the same pitcher again. He got hit in the face with a ball. Is that it? Yeah. Goodness, yeah. It's, that is such a shame because, man, what a start to a career. But then after that, the best he could manage – uh, in his age 27 season, he had a 3.72 in ERA in 113 innings. Yeah, he, my he, goodness. Gil McDonald, uh, McDougal, sorry, of the uh, Yankees, uh, actually uh, hit a ball back. It hit him, and it actually cracked his orbital, his right orbital oh, uh, bone. Uh, and he, he he never really came back after that. He had some good things, but then he started having some arm problems and. Um, actually, me, me, me and Daniel had a uh, ha, have a podcast coming out tomorrow, I think, that uh, talks about the what ifs and compares him to uh, Herb Score's story to Mike Pryor. Yeah, I mean, this guy clearly was uber talented. It's that is such a shame. Yeah. Like Mick, Mickey Mantle said, never that, heard of him. Mickey Mantle said he was the that Herb Score was the. The, the the left-handed pitcher he had the most difficulty with. Wow. And it was only two years, but um, yeah, Her, Herb Score had a hell of a start of a career, and then it, you know, uh, the ball. Hit, so quickly. Yeah, That's yeah. such a shame. He was, in the, he was in the hospital for three months after he got hit in the head. Oh, jeez. <laughs> um, yeah, but he, it, it, and then he eventually came, and I, I learned about him because he was, the radio announcer I listened to for most up until 1997. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. His, uh, 1956 season was worth 7.3 war. That's incredible. <laughs> That's pretty good. And, wow. and he was going against in the fifties. Remember he had the, the, the Yankees teams, which sure, you know, it was really the except for white Sox. I think got in one time it was the Yankees and the Indians were, you know, the American league. You still had the Red Sox that you had to contend with because you still had Ted Williams on it, you know, on those teams. And um, back to, I think Herb scores third start in 1955 was a double header. Bob Feller pitched game one and Herb was in Fenway park as a left-hander on his hmm. third start. Um, Bob Feller pitched a one hitter. It was the last of his 43 career shutouts. And wow. Feller goes, let's see how the kid does now. Herb score went and struck out 16. Incredible. <laughs> yeah, the, this says here that Ted Williams claimed he was the hardest throwing lefty he'd ever he'd ever faced. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's high praise from, from yep. uh, the best hitter of all time. Yeah, Mickey Mantle and Ted Williams are going, yeah, he was the toughest. That's incredible. And he, wow. he, and he was on a staff with uh, Bob Feller. Because, uh, you know, in 1954, the, uh, Cleveland had won 111 games and right. had the staff that Bob Feller was essentially the fifth starter on a four-man Jeez. rotation. <laughs> wow, that is legit. Like, it's crazy that I've never heard of this guy. I, you know, he's it's just some one of those careers that was – ended far too soon and you know i really wasn't around to be into baseball even during his 
during his career as an announcer. So I, I truly appreciate this like history lesson I'm getting. Yeah, here. He, he rarely um, talked about his career and uh, like any of his accolades when he was a, a, a play, when, when he was on the radio. He he would tell stories about other, especially if he went into like Milwaukee or New York. He'd talk about you know players from that from those towns and that they knew, but he did not talk much about his career much. Um, hmm which is a contrast to what a lot of the ex players usually talk about their careers a lot. And he sure. didn't, he, 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 now you knew some of it when he goes, well, you know, he's got to be thinking curveball in this situation, but the other guy's thinking curveball. So maybe he's going to throw some, maybe he's going to try to put that fastball past there. The guy would throw a fastball and he goes, well, that's why I'm not a pitching coach guys. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Well, that was one of the best tangents I've had on this show in a long time. We are one question in and about 16 minutes into our recording here. So that's fantastic. Gotta love it. Now, growing up just outside of Cleveland, is it safe to assume that you consider yourself to be a Guardians fan? Yes, I am. Fantastic. Now, I, I kind of cheated there. already knew that one. For those of you uh, I can see here... Uh, Matt is sporting the brand new Guardians logo cap. Love to see it. I have been looking all over, scouring the internet to find myself a nine inch Guardians pennant. I've got a board with all 30 teams of nine inch pennants and I move them around. I've got them set up with Velcro, move them around uh, to reflect the standings. And right now I've still just got my Indians one that I would love to replace with a Guardians one, but they haven't released a miniature pennant yet. The only pennants I've been able to find are the full like 13 or 20 inch ones. I, I will keep my look. I will keep an eye out for you. So if you see anything in your neck of the woods, I would be so happy to uh, pay for shipping, pay for the whole thing, give you a finder's fee on top of that. <laughs> I mean, anyone who's listening, if you can find me a nine-inch Guardians pennant, I will be so tickled. But anyway, how is it that uh, you had got into the Guardians or the Indians, as it were, growing up? And have there been, you know, certain players throughout your life that have been have been standouts as some of your favorites? Well, my favorite player of all time, and I was lucky enough to have met him, um, is Dwayne Kuyper, who was what they called back then a slick fielding uh, second baseman. He was a relatively good fielder. Um, we called him step and dive because he used to take one step and always dive for the ball. But as a, um, as a young little leaguer, seeing a player that was always dirty and diving for the ball just made him that much better. Uh, his claim to fame is that in his entire career between Cleveland and the Giants, he hit one home run. Wow. That's it. One. And like, I th it's like 31,000, 3,174 at bats, uh, something like that. Some very big number. He made a lot of time playing there. Uh, what's also funny is he's he hit one home run. And he also had a game where he hit two bases loaded triples. 
One game, two bases loaded triples. One game, two bases loaded triple at Yankee Stadium. He's got to be the only player to ever do that. Three players to do it. Wow. That is such a completely specific and random stat that you just threw out off the top of your head. That's insane. Yeah. So, so, so he was my first favorite player. And I have people may not remember in Cleveland in the mid seventies, they had these bright red jerseys um, that would occasionally be worn in the nineties and the two thousands when they have throwbacks and like CC Sabathia looked like a big tomato in it. Um, <laughs> I have a replica of one of those. And at a Sabre conference, um, I had the opportunity. I was doing introductions at some of them and they had ones about radio announcers and Dwayne Kuyper came in and he's seen that I had this jersey on and you just heard this, oh God. <laughs> I turn around and I go, Mr. Kuyper, you're my favorite player. He goes, and you still like baseball? <laughs> I'm sorry, oh, kid. <laughs> that's incredible. It was just an incredibly nice guy. We talked about, um, you know, some of our memories there. And even though he, he went to uh, San Francisco and then he hooked on there to be an announcer and you know, he's a really good announcer for the TVs, except for one period of time when he was in Colorado. So a man that hit one home run his entire career spent a large part of his career talking about Barry Bonds. And the one year he didn't, he was in Colorado where they hit a bunch of home runs. Uh, so it, that, uh, Barry Bonds once called Kuiper the home run champ. <laughs> these, these, the home run calling champ, I guess you could call him. I guess so. <laughs> now, just because you've thrown out some really specific stats, I got to ask, who was it that Dwayne Kuyper hit his only home run against, and do you know when it was? It was 1976, August 24th. It was Monday, because he was on Monday night. He was Monday night baseball. Uh, and it was Steve Stone, who would eventually go to win the Cy Young Award, for uh, the Orioles, and as Steve Stone told in the story one time, he almost gave up two home runs to Dwayne Kuyper because the year that he won the Cy Young Award, they were playing in uh, Baltimore's old Memorial Stadium, and Dwayne Kuyper hit another one, but it they had um, if it hit on one side of a line, it was a double. On the other side, it was a home run, and Dwayne Kuyper's went on that one side. He goes, I almost gave up two home runs to a man and would have been the only two. He goes, Nye Young has won a Cy Young Award when I almost gave it up. That's <laughs> wild. You are dead on Steve Stone. Just barely off on the date. It was August 29th. 29th. 77. 77. Very, very close, though. That was incredible. Yeah. Yeah. I just remember it was Monday night because I actually I, I got to see it. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, Kuiper holds the major league record for the most career at bats with exactly one home run. <laughs> That's fantastic. He also has seven Emmys for his for his uh, broadcasting career. And if you're on if you're on baseball, I think he was drafted like seven or eight times. If I remember correctly. Yeah, that's what I'm seeing as well. Um, let's see. Drafted in the 12th round in 68. Uh, ninth round in 69. Uh, ninth round again in 69. 
uh, let's see, first round in 1970, third round in 1970, fourth round in 71, and first round in 72. <laughs> yeah, so I think the last time he said, I just figured that at some point they're going to stop, so he just signed with somebody. <laughs> I did not realize he went to SIU. That is not too far from where I'm from. He's, he's from Racine, Wisconsin, but went to Southern Illinois. Did not know that. Learned another thing. <laughs> oh, you can learn a whole bunch by just looking at some of your uh, non-star players. And there's interesting exactly. things that happen. Uh, and they all, most players that play long enough do something so just unique that you just have to look and find, you know, what they've done. Absolutely. So as a Guardians fan, how are you feeling about the rebrand? Uh, was was Guardians your go-to choice? Uh, would you have another preference, etc.? Well, I was hoping they would go back to the old name Naps. Okay. They were named after Nat Lahoji, which is a Hall of Famer. Now, granted... I only know that because that was discussed multiple times like i i didn't know they were called the naps but then when i read all of the pieces on here's what the name should be sort of thing i did hear that so i but uh, this one one yeah and then of course lahoji decided to go to the philadelphia a's with connie mack so you couldn't really have the team named after somebody for the opposing team in the same league uh, they were actually officially called the Molly Maguires for about two years before they officially became the Indians. Uh, and I, personally, I like the change. I, I think people overblow the, um, the, the political aspect of it. Sure. Um, now, and I have some in this, my wife is standing rock Sioux. So I, and my son is also part standing rock Sioux. So I am married to and Native American. Um, and I've talked to people that were, she does some involvement with some of the councils, uh, Indian councils, Native American councils that are in her area. Uh, because Ohio doesn't have an officially recognized tribe of any sort. Sure. So <laughs> the, the, the only Indians that were in Cleveland were, in the ba- were on the baseball team. But what I think when the Dolans bought the team, um, Dolans are a very Catholic uh, family. They're on. They went to Notre Dame and they went to a uh, a Jesuit Catholic school that was in Cleveland called Saint Edwards. That's where they went. They went. Almost all the kids went to Notre Dame uh, and became lawyers. <clears throat> I think when they bought the team, they wanted to have Cleveland baseball be permanent. Um, they bought it from a guy by the name of Dick Jacobs, who was a developer who bought the team, decided he wanted to make more money. He made them, you could buy stock in the Indians. So essentially when the Dolans decided to buy the team, they had to buy all the stock back. Yep. Um, but I think the Dolans always had it in their mind that they were going to change the name. I, I just think it was part of their plan when they bought the team. But they weren't going to be able to come out and buy the team and say, oh, by the way, we're buying a team, we're changing the name, we're doing all this. I just don't think they were going to be able to do that. They had... You know, they, they, where they play, which is now Progressive Field, which was part of this thing called, they call the Gateway Project. Um, you had the, the, the 
but baseball field and basketball where the Cavs play. I, I just think it was part of their plan to slowly move and change the name um, and eventually sell the team, which they're talking about bringing in a minority owner who will eventually take over the team. And I understand what they wanted to do. The, the name Indians, did it was part of Cleveland baseball, but it really wasn't part of Cleveland. Sure, we have a river sure. and we have a couple things that have Native American names, but it wasn't a part of Cleveland. So I think this was part of their plan. I think it moved a little bit quicker when some of the reports are and some of the rioting and that that was happening in the past few years. Uh, being a, they like to contribute to the causes and they're, they're more of a liberal leaning uh, in their philosophy. Um, so, but they were being told by some groups, look, you've, you had this racist figure on, you know, Chief Wahoo and you got this racist name. I'm not sure we want you really associated with us. We don't really mm -hmm. want your help. And I, I think that hurt them a little bit to move it a little bit faster. Um, I do like the name Guardians. They were always one of my favorite things. Uh, I used to live in Cleveland, in a little section of it called Old Brooklyn on the west side. And to get to work in downtown Cleveland, I used to drive over that bridge all the time. Uh, and, you know, drive right past the stadium and do all that. So it's, sure. it's interesting because, and then, uh, you know, Bob Hope, who was the comedian and OSU guy and all that, reportedly his father was one of the people that helped build the, do the sculpturing and everything on that. Because Bob Hope used to be an owner of the Indians um, for a small time. So I, I like the idea. I think what the Dolans are trying to do um, in making, they want to make progressive field sort of like Yankee Stadium or Fenway Park, a destination that people would go to. Even if you aren't an, a Cle you know, Guardians fan, you might want to go there just because it's a nice place to go. They have a nice downtown. There's a lot of nice uh, you know, activities around there, nice hotels around there. And I just th think this was part of their plan. I don't think they got woke or anything like that. I just think, sure. they just, you know, we want to make this part Cleveland baseball, part of the Cleveland community. They've always been some big supporters of uh, the softball and baseball programs in Cleveland public schools. So I, I like that. I like that they kept the colors. I was red, white, and blue. I just got so used to my birthday is July 4th. So I support teams having red, white, and blue as their sure. colors. Um, but I, I like that. I like the name. The logos are starting to do it on me. I really like the new font and the lettering. Oh, the new font is fantastic. It just, especially seeing it on, uh, with the players on the uniforms, it was like that. Just it just looks oh, yeah. so much better. I'm a big fan of that. It's it's got a lot more personality than the uh, former Indians uh, kind of font and uh, lettering that they would use. You know, with a bit of uh, Cleveland baseball news today, Miles Straw extended. Yes. What are your thoughts on that? I. I've liked what Cleveland's been doing. They, they, they obviously have said, we've got these young players. We're going to start going with them. And everybody was upset that they didn't sign somebody. Um, right. But seeing them getting a deal with Jose done. Uh, you know, ML uh, Class A, they got him. 
they got straw they now have a good core team for anywhere from four to seven years yeah now they can figure out and cleveland teams are always notoriously bad in april um i, I never try especially with terry francona i see what he tries to do when he has younger players he, he doesn't want them to play much. He'd rather have them in AAA because hitting, especially for some of these guys that have never played in Cleveland weather in April, hitting can be really hard. And he'd yeah. much rather have them start trying it in May when they experience a little success elsewhere than just throwing people to the, to the wolves. I mean, unless they are a spectacular talent. And when I think we got some really good young players, you know, we don't have another Jose Ramirez right. that's, that's down there. Um, and I, I just like short fat guys. And I'm like, this is Jose Ramirez. He's my, he's my <laughs> spirit animal. Um, <laughs> and they picked him over Lindard. I'm like, you know, it's looking like it is as a clubhouse guy. He just, I mean, nobody, I, I've never heard any of the reporters of beat reporters, or anybody say anything bad about Jose. No. So he seems like a class act. And I like Miles Straw. I think he's I think he's going to be good. Um Yeah, I mean, it's the contract is very team friendly. 5 years, 25 million. Okay. Yeah. Kid says I'm going to get my my payday now. Good for him. And now we have a center fielder. Yay. Yeah. He just it, two it, more to go. <laughs> with if nothing else, he's going to play very good defensive center field. He's going to continue to steal bases for the next few years. He's 27, so at the end of the contract, he's 32. That's not bad at all. So, yeah, I like this for them. Like you said, locking down Jose Ramirez, locking down uh, Classe, Classe? Classe, yeah. Classe, okay. I think, yeah, there's some good things going on here. I'd like to see them reach some kind of extension with Bieber. I think that would be very, very good if they can manage that. That's going to be hard because I think his agent is Scott Boris, if I remember correctly. Oh, that is less ideal for That's less ideal, yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but the way they've been able to turn their pitching from the minor leagues up, they seem to be able to take people a certain way and say, we're, we're going to make you good. Yeah. I mean, Cleveland has been able to produce some fantastic pitching the past decade, really. I mean, I'm very excited about Cal Quantrill. Um, I like him too. I really do. I think he's he's very interesting. I don't know if he's as good as we saw down the stretch last year, but I think he definitely could be like a three-five guy, uh, which could be all you need. I'm not ready to give up on Plezak. I know a lot of people are less enthused about him in fantasy circles and whatnot. <laughs> I still like Zach Plezak quite a bit. And Tristan McKenzie, I'm excited to see what he could be. So there, yeah, I feel we, like no matter put, what the hitting is doing, Cleveland teams always have good pitching. And we have Savali. Yeah. I mean, people forget he was like 10-1 and one before he got injured last year. Mm-hmm. And he's not that hard thrower, but he seems to be a very good pitcher. Absolutely, yeah. I mean... Last year, he's even with the injury, still managed 384 ERA. So that's about all you can hope for out of your, you know, four or five hitter or pitcher, I should say. Yeah, but McKenzie, the only problem is we can't put him out there when it's windy. 
<laughs> he's very much a uh, fly ball type hitter. He's he's either going to strike you out or pop you out yeah. one or two. And if it's too windy, he's going to get blown off because he's he's a little. He is very <laughs> small. What do they have him listed at here? Let's see if I can pull. Whatever it is, it's a lie. Uh, six five, one hundred and sixty five pounds. <laughs> oh, buddy, <laughs> he is very small or at least very thin but i, I do like him I, I and i like his uh, uh i just sort of like the, the 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 attitude i get from or the the feeling i get from him when he gives his interviews and that he's just you know he he fits into cleveland very well i guess is the best way to put it yeah uh, absolutely and it, sometimes that's just that gets you a little bit of a break sometimes when you're having those bad stretches. Yeah. Now, as for your fantasy baseball career, are there certain types of leagues that you prefer to play in? Uh, how many leagues you play in this year, et cetera, et cetera. I actually do not do fantasy baseball. Uh, you know, you're not the first person who's come on here and told me that. I, I enjoy it. I love watching from the outside. I, I like to see I mean, I'll watch mock drafts, like sometimes when Nick and some of the guys have, you know, but I'll watch them just to see it and everything like that. I just don't really have the time to associate with it. And I wouldn't want to take somebody's spot when, you know, like sometimes the, the one time I did fantasy baseball about 10 years ago or so, I ended up just drafting people by volume. I took their weight and their height, made a volume <laughs> and... That I need a catcher. Okay, uh, that, that guy. I, I ended up finishing fourth, which was just okay. sheer luck. I'm not putting anything towards that other than a blind squirrel finds a nut once in a while. And I said, "That's it. I'm done. Uh, I don't want to take up any place." But I do. I do enjoy. It. I love seeing how people get into this, and you know, I I look look looking at stories and everything like that, and just I'm a people watcher sometimes, and just watching some of these guys how they're going uh, back at each other. And I'm going to do this trade. I'm going to do that. I just enjoy it. It's just not something I want to participate on, but I'll, I'll, I'll watch it. And uh, I love the discussions that happen like in the discord channel and that. I just love looking back and going, this, this, this stuff is awesome. I mean, they really care. Um, oh yeah. It is. It is a fascinating microcosm of the sports world. I, to hear you say that, you know, you don't have the time to commit to it. Uh, when my last interviewee, another Cleveland fan, Chad Young, says he's in 14 leagues this year, is just some fantastic dichotomy there. Yeah, yeah. I, th I think if I was in one league, my wife would kill me. <laughs> I, I am in five this year, and I think my wife is still under the impression that I'm in four. So, so you don't let her, let her listen to the podcast. <laughs> She wouldn't want to, even if I let her. <laughs> she she has to listen to me too much already. I don't think she's willingly putting on an hour and a half of me talking about baseball any more than I already do. <laughs> now, since you've been with us here, you joined, uh, was it last season you, only yeah, it, you joined in? I joined, my first year was the first year we had the pan, the start of the pandemic. Sure. So, so like 2020-ish season. Yeah, so 2020 -ish. since you've been with us, has there been a uh, article or project that you've been particularly proud of working on? 
the, the one I like the best um, was I wrote about Glenn Burke, uh, who was the first openly gay uh, uh, bas- or base- baseball player. He's from the 70s. I, I just enjoyed that. Um, I, I knew about that and researching it more, and I got to read a couple books and read some articles about it. That was just the most enjoy. I, I got the most out of doing the research from that. Uh, just, just, just learning that, yeah, that back in the seventies, that there were still, you know, there's all kinds of discrimination and people say terrible things about the LGBT community now, but back then, I think the thing that really got me in, um, I was reading, it's actually a book called split season, uh, about the split 1981, uh, baseball season. And where Ron say, basically, you know, they asked about Glenn Burke and, you know, it was basically said, I don't care. He's an important part of this team. He keeps us loose. He's playing good. I, I, I don't care. You know, he's a member of this team. And, you know, you hate to say it, you get, you look at people and you sort of say, I, I don't think Ron say would ever say that, but the fact that he did, and um, he was such a part of the team that went to the world series he, you know, he was playing. He, he he helped he helped them through World Series and get a championship. And just knowing that it happened and it was okay, and you know, it's just I just liked sharing that 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 there. Plus, Glenbert seemed to have had a rough life when he was out. Um, unfortunately, he you know got into he got injured. Um, he got into drugs. He he. Um, you know, came up, but then he came, and then he got AIDS. Unfortunately, yeah. it happened a lot of, you know, the gay men back then. Uh, unfortunately, it happened too much. And then just hearing, but in writing, finding out that somebody, somebody that wrote a book about him was a baseball fan. That when Burke played for the Yankees one year and they had the autograph books that they used to give so you could get them signed, everybody ignored this kid. Glenn Burke grabbed his book and signed it. Hmm. And later on, this is the guy that wrote a biography about him. The same guy. That's incredible. And when you read this, it's just like everybody was just, he was such a, he made everybody happy. And it was, it was just to me, it was just like, it's, this is one of those great stories that should, MLB should push this story. His, he wasn't a perfect man. He had, he you know, he had things, bad things that happened to him and some of them, happened to him because of him but he he was beloved when he got traded from the Dodgers people cried some of his teammates cried when he got traded you're like he wasn't a star he was a pretty good player um but just that he had that impact and nobody knows the story or very few people know the story about this is one that should be out there all the time absolutely uh, and uh, that, that that's the one I just had the most fun doing the research on. And somebody put a great article or the, the image. I forgot who did the graphic, but the graphic is just like I looked at it and I said, it's perfect. Oh, it's it's I'm looking at it right now. It's beautiful. I love it. Yeah. And, and then oh, the same man invented the fantastic. invented the high five. I don't care if some people say it's but he invented the high five with Dusty Baker. Um, yep. <laughs> you know, it's just it, it's this great little story and I can't understand why it's not more out there. Uh, yeah. I love that. I think, 
I don't remember having read that one. I'm going to have to go back and give it a read because that is a spectacular story that, like I said, I don't think I've ever heard. It's one of those things where this is even, you know, much more recent than like the fifties and whatnot that we were talking about before. This is, this is, you know, within my father's lifetime. And it's something that I, wish I had known more about. So it, 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 it's great. And the fact that he was Glenn Burks was friends with Tommy sort of son. Uh, and just, you know, Lasorda never really talked about his son. His Tommy sort of son was also um, gay. And the fact that he didn't talk that I'm just, Sometimes when you look at baseball history, you see so many times where they could have done the right thing and they didn't. And, and this is one of those where, you know, in Los Angeles, th- they could have talked about this because it was an open secret. Everybody right. knew they just didn't talk. If they could have talked about this, how they could have helped some, uh, you know, people that were gay or in that way and sort of help them under, maybe help it make it where people didn't give them as much crap as they got um when they were growing up it's just if they just could have done it that that's the part doing some of this history that just sometimes you're like i I just can't believe we did this we're such morons yeah Yeah. (laughs) that is fantastic and i i truly appreciate you taking the time to tell that story you know to People like me who had never heard it and would not have otherwise likely if, if not for you, you know, doing the research yourself and bringing it to the pitcher list community. I think a lot of our pitcher list community is, you know, a lot of guys my age born in the 80s and 90s who would never have even really heard of this guy um, were it not for your writing about him here. That's what I try, that, much appreciated. That's what that's what I try to do. That, that, that's the part I like fun about this stuff. That's fantastic. Love it. Now, outside of the baseball realm, and I know this is where a lot of people get a little uncomfortable. Outside of the baseball realm, uh, what other things do you uh, like to get up to? Hobbies, work, etc. Well, um, I build three string cigar box guitars uh, from usually from scratch. Uh, I try to keep them under a hundred dollars for parts, uh, which is kind of hard now because wood is expensive. Uh, that is. <laughs> uh, but that, that's one of the things I like to do. I'm terrible at playing them, um, but I do love to build them. Uh, and I also build like one string diddly bows and uh, those type of things. So, and that's something I like to do with, uh, since my dad retired, um, he was a wood... He'd started in woodworking, but unfortunately his eyes are getting bad. So one of the things that we can do together, and there's a couple cigars that have been built by me, my dad, and my son. Um, dad has the experience in how to do stuff. So me and my son will be his eyes. That's awesome. So it's a, it's a time for, you know, the, us to get together and uh, just play around and do stuff. And uh, it's, it's always fun to do that. And I'm currently building a, I'm actually building a pitcher list cigar box guitar uh oh i am very excited to see that and one of these times where alex was doing his baseline things on one of my 
history tweets is going to be, I'm going to call it three, sing, three string slide, and I'm going to do one of them in a video with once I get the one built. Um, That's awesome. I, I am also a computer geek. Uh, I, I started, I got my first computer from Radio Shack when they were still around. Uh, and um, I do a lot of programming. I used to be a programmer. I'm now more on the administration uh, administration side, sysadmin side for, for what I do for my real job. But um, I've written in old languages that are called COBOL and Fortran, which are really old. And I've heard of Fortran. <laughs> that is okay. <laughs> Uh, you still writing in that one, buddy? Uh, I still, in fact, the original Yeehaw Factor uh, programming that I did was all in Fortran. And since I decided I wanted to try to share it with people more, I converted it over into um, a more current language to do that. But the original test one was all done in Fortran. Wow. And uh, so, so, so yeah, that's, that's sort of my things. I, I've been involved in the open source community. I used to, at one point, run a, a couple free web services for URL shorteners and measuring uptimes. And nice. if you've ever heard of Linux, at one point in time, I had contributed to the Linux kernel. Very nice. Yeah. A good, good buddy of mine uh, is tangentially involved in a bit of Linux development nowadays. My, my entire career now is Linux. So. Very nice. That's awesome. Well, all righty. We're going to go ahead and take a quick break, and we will be right back. We're going to talk about baseball stats and what we get wrong with them. Hey, Alex Fast here, and thanks for listening to this podcast on the Pitcher List Podcast Network. If you're a fan, consider supporting all of us by getting a PL Plus subscription, where you're going to get an ad-free website and get access to our Discord, where you can talk to all of our podcast hosts and staff. Plus, you can hang out with our incredible Pitcher List community. It's basically a baseball sanctuary year-round for as low as $8 a month. You can sign up at PitcherList.com backslash plus, and you're going to get your first month free with promo code podcast also don't forget to check out everything else we do as well from youtube videos live streams newsletters off-season articles tiktoks breakdowns over 15 baseball podcasts on our network we can't stop talking about baseball even during the off-season so sign up for pl plus today at pitcherlist.com backslash plus and use promo code podcast to get your first month free all right thanks for listening let's get back to the show and we are back. Now, Matt, I always like to let the guests pick what we talk about for the most part when it comes to the second half of the episode, discussing baseball and things like that. And I was surprised <laughs> that our, you know, historian here at Pitcher List wanted to talk about stats. So tell me where you're coming from and what is you what you are interested in discussing when you when you put in the notes here baseball stats what do we get wrong about them well it, it's a question um because i i don't think people ask that question enough this is not saying that stats are bad and you should be going by your gut or anything like that it it, it doesn't mean anything like that where I think, and this maybe comes from some of my uh, philosophical studies or thinking, is sure. that 
we we tend not to break stats down enough and then we don't examine them enough when we look at them. Uh, if you go and study, if, if you're a Douglas Adams fan and you're looking for the, the, the answer to life, universe, and everything, where the answer came back was 42. But if you're looking for meaning of life and things like that, there's two ways you can look at it. What gives your life meaning? What makes your life meaningful? And I look at, I'm start, I've been starting to look at stats that way. And saying, well, when I look at a stat, does it tell me about the meaning of the game, the, how things have happened or things like that? And then there is there other ones that give me an enrichment as to what's happening in that game? Because if you really break it down, the only thing you need to know about stats, you really need to know about a baseball game, is run scored. Who scored more? That will tell you who won the game. But there's more to it then. Now, now you need to go into your nuance. And so I, t I tend to, I've been taking stats and breaking those down. Um, you know, like something like RBI, which everybody hates, and they should. Because <laughs> all that does is tell you who hit somebody in. To run. You, you already know that runners scored. So an RBI is just more giving you a little bit more color. But it really doesn't, you know, that doesn't matter. Um, what this really came from is over this over the winter, somebody had published a list of the top 10 fastest pitches thrown uh, in baseball that recorded on Baseball Savant. Okay. And I had asked, okay, what happened to those pitches? You know, and it, I, I wasn't being snarky sure, or like, anything. What was the result? What was the result? And from, my under, from what I remember is, Six of those balls were put in play. Two were strikes and two were balls. Huh. The ones that were put in play, I think two or three of them were foul balls. One was a hit and other were flyouts. But it was just, you know, somebody was putting something out there, and I just found a question about these were the fastest pitches. I'm like, yeah, but what happened to them? And that's a, a, another part that I come to with the stats, and that's where I say we're getting stats wrong is starting to look and say, okay, fine, we've, we've got this stat. It tells us something interesting. But what else does it tell us? Um, you know, like when you look at ERA versus FIP, which is sure. one of those. Nobody really has looked, or the research I found, well, somebody might have a FIP that's 1.5, you know, runs lower, whatever you want to call it, um, than their ERA. Well, what's causing that? And that, that, right. that's a little bit of an area. Is it always because their fielders are bad? Um, how the way that you can look at it. And that's where, when I say we get stats wrong, it's, I don't think we examine that a little bit. And that comes from, you know, in my career, I deal with people that do machine language, language learning and things like that, where I see people that get data and then, that data, when they examine it, doesn't, you know, they don't always examine what they need or they don't take things into consideration. Uh, the biggest one is um, uh, somebody wrote a book called uh, Weapons of Math Destruction, where right. this, this lady went into it and they found out that a company wrote a company to, or uh, wrote a program to help with sentencing and paroles and things like that. Uh, and... It, when they did it and they wrote it, they found out that 
the program was a little bit, you know, racist, <laughs> to put it in a better oh, way. No. Because when they put the information in and they fed it, they took it from previous, you know, previous court cases. Yep. And what they found out is that when they originally wrote it, it was given results that people didn't like because it was against it. So they essentially wrote an algorithm that was fed in by the other ones and did that. And that's another part, I think, where we get stats. We we start seeing that somebody has a lot of whiffs. He must be a good pitcher. And those type of things. And if we start spewing those stats towards almost getting the results we want, you know, you've convinced yourself that Garrett Cole is a good pitch. So every stat that ranks him should rank him high without the possibility that he might not be good at something or that type of thing. So that's where I think we get the stats. Okay. Some of those stats wrong and some of that. And I think sometimes we worry about and a whiff percentage and everything is great, but we don't know what happens in that at bat where they had the whiff. Okay. Uh, that's what that's what my thinking is. I'm not saying, well, we should go back and just go back to the 50s. No, 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 no. That was bad back then. We're doing good now. Let's do better. <laughs> I got it. Okay. So if I, just to make sure I understand your argument correctly, um, some of the granular uh, stats that we look at that are... Um, that are on a pitch by pitch basis might not tell the whole story without having to look at another two or three other stats that give the full context. Is that what, is that kind of what you're, what you're saying here? That's part of what I'm looking at. And I'm thinking that like, you know, you might want to look at whiffs and see like what was the pitch before or what happened on the pitch after that might be a way to expand it because Maybe somebody throwing their curveball gets a swing and miss. But if after the curveball they come back and somebody's getting a hit, that whiff doesn't look as impressive if in that at bat somebody's putting the bat on the ball or that type of thing. And I'm just interested to look at that stuff. I have a feeling that might change the way we look at some of these. Uh, We all know, I mean, just look at uh, Jose Ramirez at bat where he got his uh, RBI in the opener. Sure. He swung at a high fastball to make it 3-2. He got fooled by the pitch. Yep. Granky threw another pitch about in the same location, but I, I think he threw a, uh, probably one of his like two-seamers or a cutter, and he came back with a fastball, and Ramirez hit that right up the center for um, you know an RBI double. Okay, it's great. Granky got the whiff, but in terms of that at bat, you know how successful was it? And that's just okay. just this one example. And I, th- what I'd like, what I think would be helpful is find the how do we go after after that type of information? When is a whiff gotcha. a good? You know, it's like when is a whiff a good whiff? Sure. So it's more of a kind of understanding the the proper context of 
statistics in order to get a more a fuller picture of a player right and and their uh of a player and their you know ability sort of thing because because for a game we have plenty of stats i can look at a box score and probably give you a pretty good general idea of how the game went yeah um so we we don't really need a lot of stats to tell us more about the game itself now it's breaking down the players and that's what i love about fantasy baseball these guys are looking for little small spots that will oh yeah say how this do, do that and instead of always looking for a new stat i would like to see people expand the stats that are there and make them a little bit more interesting especially with the fact that you can now know that guys you know throwing a curveball that drops like this and this and it's going through this location um on there um you can figure out who's tunneling stuff uh and all this so we've got that information there i'd like to see to expand it a little bit more um to get a little bit more context and that, sure. that's just where i think they get it wrong and I, I think people get too comfortable saying this stat's great it shows that all these pictures are great yeah but is somebody that's good on that stat at the bottom of the barrel also but why that makes sense i think um Probably a good example of that would be a guy like, if, if we're just, just sticking with your whiffs here, a guy like Mitch Keller, um, who has a swinging strike percentage. Uh, I mean, if you look at just his first few seasons here, swinging strike percentage is at about 9%. Pretty good. However, he also gives up a lot of, of hard contact and walks a lot of guys as well. A, I mean, last year, um, last year he got his walk rate at about 10 and a half percent. And despite an 8% swinging strike rate only struck out 19% of batters and ended up with a 6.17 ERA. He's a, he's the type of guy who has, the ability to get swings and misses, but whether it be sequencing or uh, lack of control, he is unable to consistently get strikeouts and outs. Yeah. And that, that's just where I think expanding to where we use, well, okay, this guy's got a great whiff rate and ERA is six, seven, you know, just, Start looking as to some of those reasons why. And then maybe you can expand the whiff rate to, to, to looking at how many times does he have a whiff and have a good outcome on that at-bat. Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah, I, I think that would be a more more impressive. And, I th- and then you can use that, I think, especially if you're a pitching coach or something like that. Well, how come this guy can get swings and misses and he can't? get outs right you know maybe we need to take a different approach it was just like you know herb score you noticed that he had a whole bunch of walks yeah uh, when he came up there um and they because he didn't have a good command of his curveball what really happened between those two years is basically mel harder who was the pitching coach for the uh guardians at the time gave him 
a different grip for his curveball. And his walks went down. Hmm. And that was part part of what it is. And, you know, now, now then they just seen, Herb, you've got too many walks and you can't get your curveball over. Now they would have more information about that. And that, that that's another area that I think you can expand into is really getting context on stats. Um, and that's actually a project I'm working on. I'm, I'm, I'm going through and trying to break down a lot of a, a lot of the stats and saying which ones are runs. They're important, but they tell you about the game. Right. Now, part of the game is creating runs and preventing them. Then you go expand it that way. Then, you know, part of getting outs, an out is an out. Okay. Now, how does the pitcher affect outs? And those stats are all there, but I'm trying to break down like a tree and put those in different ways to find out which ones are really important and which ones are just, well, it's neat. Tells me more about the game, but... You know, if you have strikeouts, that means you don't have to rely on your offense or your defense. Well, if you have right. a good defense, now perhaps maybe you might have want those type of pitchers that put the ball on the field. Sure. And so that is an interesting segue here because I was looking at FIP. You mentioned it a bit earlier, where that statistic, which is meant to be a ERA indicator sort of thing. It only is concerned with strikeouts, walks, hit by pitch, and home runs. It has, FIP does not take into account anything that happens behind the pitcher unless the ball goes over the fence. It's supposed to be considered the results that a pitcher can get that they are in control of. For the most part, it's not, it's obviously not a perfect, uh, right. formula by any means, but it does its job for the most part, um, basically waiting how, how much does a home run affect a pitcher versus a walk or a hit by pitch or a strikeout, etc. And so it's interesting to, because FIP is very much a, it is a uh, result of the at bat or result of the plate appearance statistic. Whereas something like whiff percentage is a result of the individual pitches in each at bat statistic. And I think that's something that has been kind of a revolution in the last decade or so. Um, we have been looking a lot more at pitch by pitch data rather than um, just plate appearance by plate appearance and trying to determine how do you get to outs or how do you get to a uh, a hit or a walk for on the opposite side for a hitter what is the process to go through once you, once the hitter steps in the box what does the pitcher have to do to make sure that he goes back to the dugout or what does the batter have to do to ensure that he is helping his team score runs. So it's, it's fascinating that this, this is kind of where the game has gone is in, in order to, you know, find that edge, find the next, you know, revolution in baseball per se. Yeah. And I, th- I think the, the person or people that get that pitch by pitch stuff and start correlating it to, plate appearance stuff 
which can then be correlated to, you know, runs or not scoring yep. runs, which is really what it comes down to preventing runs or scoring runs. And that's just a part where I don't see a lot of focus on taking that pitch by pitch stuff and putting it into plate appearances. Right. Or, you know, game strategy. You know, sure. Run expectancy and, and things like that, which deal with plate appearance things. And that that's the next step. And that's what I'd like to see. Um, and it'd be re- really interesting to find somebody that can tie that together. Um, but that's where I say we're, we're getting stats wrong because we're getting kind of static. Yeah, I I think a lot of these statistics, like whip percentage and stuff like that, at least in the fantasy baseball community, we use them as predictive sort of statistics where this is what the pitcher has done and this is the process and the that they have gone through to get these results. Now that we see what they are capable of currently, what can we extrapolate to determine how they will perform uh, going forward? Because really, fantasy baseball is all a matter of figuring out who's going to be better than expected is really all it is. And hoping that your friends don't figure that out while you do. Um, And trying to basically taking all the information you can to try and put some order to all the randomness that is baseball. Um, and so I think what you're describing is something completely different is instead of taking a player and taking the statistics and applying them to a player and trying to determine, um, you know, predictive, uh, expectations for the player. What you are discussing is rather taking these statistics and moving them towards the game in general and more game theory rather than player development mm-hmm. sort of thing. Yeah, that, that's that's sort of where I'm going there. Which I mean, for for fantasy, it probably wouldn't be great. Um, but just in terms of doing baseball better, I guess is the best way to put it. Um, and and that still to me is 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 the more important part of. Uh, of it. And maybe that's part of the reason why I just can't find a time for fantasy baseball is because I, I like the overall game and I'm not saying sure. people that do fantasy don't like the overall game. Uh, always got to be careful with that. Cause I, I got <laughs> yelled at for that stuff before um, <laughs> screamed at on Twitter before for things like that. But oh, no. that, you know, that that's just my focus is, is I, I like baseball as the game. It's, you know, a game that's been around. I have done research on how baseball could have very, very well influenced a game called rounders in, in England um, and things like that. So I, I like that history. And when I want to talk about games, I've, part of also what I want to do is try to find stuff that doesn't completely rely on the advanced data that's available now. Sure. I want to apply it back to the 1890s or, you know, the 1910s and to the dead ball. And then, you know, into the twenties and the thirties, I'd like to try to find a way that we can compare those eras with the advanced stuff we have now with this, what we know now. So if we can look at way of how individual pitchers pitch and see the results and tie that into something that's related to the game, 
I can look for how things are back in the game back in the 20s and make some guesstimates that this is how you know Walter Johnson would have compared to you know uh, Barry Bonds. Sure. Uh, with with a little bit more more certainty because obviously the guys back then were pitching not quite as fast. Walter Johnson was probably the fastest, and he might have been hitting ninety five and occasionally. Right. Bob Feller was probably hitting a hundred on occasion, um, not as often was happening now. But then most of these guys were either barnstorming or working in a factory on the weekends. You know, mm-hmm. in, in the summer why we have full-fledged programs for these guys to work out. And if you, the, the best description was, and this, this came from my wife, is I was comparing some players from 2010 to 1910. And she told me the biggest difference was the ones in 1910 looked doughy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, that's, that's the difference between baseball is your year-round career with the, not only just the, you know, time to devote to it but they have entire medical staffs that are devoted with all of the advancements that we've had in the last hundred years in medicine to creating the pinnacle of athleticism so it's yeah doughy probably is a (laughs) pretty good uh pretty good adjective there in comparison to you know the adonises that we see in mlb today and they're also tall um yeah i mean you you get guys like uh you get get guys like chris bryant and giancarlo stanton who are just behemoths of (laughs) muscle and then there's also you know jose ramirez and uh and Tristan McKenzie, who are, it's, it's amazing. Baseball players come in all shapes and sizes. Yes. And that's always been the case, uh, which has always been interesting, but you talk about the medical part and um, there's this interest. I'd mentioned it before, David Baldwin. Mm -hmm. When he, he he grew up in Arizona and um, where uh, near where the uh, Cleveland used to do spring training. And this was back in the forties and that. So he had Bob Feller and all these great guys that he used to watch. Um, he was supposed to be the next Bob Feller when he was uh, a, a youngster in high school. And when he was in college at Arizona, university of Arizona, he, he was probably throwing 95, 96 miles per hour. His sophomore year as his words, my elbow just degenerated. He threw a pitch and he could feel it snap. So he knew he needed, you know, as he's explained to me, I would have needed Tommy John surgery if they had it. Right. He still managed to make it through, graduate from Arizona and get in the major leagues, but he couldn't just throw overhand or cross that or three quarters. So his, him and his dad had invented a pitching box that he would throw into. And that's how he's, it, he could throw it in there and it would bounce back and give him the ball back. So he had his own pitching machine, essentially. Nice. One year, he just, his coach said, if you can't learn to pitch, you're, you know, you don't have a career anymore. So he went and he taught himself how to throw a sidearm. He became hmm. a sidearm, uh, underhand, basically sidearm pitcher. And he managed to make it to the major leagues for six years. 
He played for the Washington Senators for a little bit where his coach was Ted Williams. Wow. And one time Richard Nixon came in to to the uh the the dug or uh, you know the clubhouse and he had just saved a game which Nixon watched and Nixon goes now who are you again he goes I'm the one that throws funny <laughs> <laughs> but that's awesome back then pitcher and part of the with Herb score he got hit in the face he was out for a while but he also started experiencing elbow problems and mm-hmm. when I um, best I could tell by the research I did. Herb score probably blew out his UCL. Mm. And that was another, you know, another reason it caused it. But back then you had pitchers, they couldn't do, get that fix. Even if there was a partial tear, they didn't know about rehabbing that injury. So you'll find a lot of older pitchers that, wow, he was doing pretty good. And then spend five, six years just doing mop up duty. Yep. But they were still better than whoever was going to come up and try to replace them. Yeah, that's wild. Yeah, in uh, in '67, uh, Dave Baldwin, best season of his career at 29 years old, uh, like that sidearm reliever. You said 170 ERA in 26 games. He had 12 saves as well. So uh, let's see. In uh, 68 and two thirds innings. 52 strikeouts, 20 walks. That's not bad at all. <laughs> yeah, he was pretty good. He, he was pretty, but he was only um, against right-handers. Left-handers, you know, obviously he's coming in sidearm, so he smacked the crap out of him, which he admitted. But he also was a very smart guy. He got a PhD in genetics. Wow. And a master's in systems uh, engineering. So I think somebody said he was one of the few people that at one point had um, one of his things in the Smithsonian, one of his baseball things in the Smithsonian, and had an article that he had written published by the Smithsonian. Shoot, that's cool. And he's, he's a nice guy. I've talked to him. He became an artist. Um, if He wrote a book called Snake Jazz, which is his biography, which is what he called his curveball, which was the name for a curveball. So he's he's uh in one of his paintings was in the uh, baseball hall of fame. This guy is a modern day renaissance. Man. Oh yeah, you paint poetry, <laughs> an, an extremely nice guy. I, I, I've exchanged emails with him and just uh, salt of the earth type of guy. Will help anybody out. Very nice. Um, That's very cool. That's one, awesome. One of my interesting people. And if you really want to see. A relief pitcher that did well. Look up Mike Marshall <laughs> and find out when he won the Cy Young Award, and see how many innings games he was involved in while he was a relief pitcher. Now, are we talking to Mike Marshall, whose career started in '67? Yeah, that that would probably yeah that that, right? that would be the one. Okay, so. Best season I'm seeing here was his age 31 season for the Dodgers in 1974, his first all-star appearance and his Cy Young uh, award-winning season, Uh, 208 innings pitched, zero games started, 106 games pitched, 
Wow. Uh, only 21 saves. So he was not coming in and just like at the end of the game. This guy was yeah, all the time. See how many innings so again, he pitched? Like 208. 208 innings pitched in yeah. 106 games. So he would almost always pitch at least two innings. Um, he had a 2.42 ERA and 143 strikeouts with only 56 walks. Wow. That's pretty spectacular. He did get hit around quite a bit, which is wild that he was able to strand all those guys. He had 191 hits. He but Mike he, Marshall is this unique guy. In fact, he developed he also got a PhD and his was in kinetics. Wow. <laughs> um while he was playing baseball, he was going to school and he developed his own pitching motion, which he has, uh, he, he passed away. I think last year, uh, I talked to him a little bit about his pitching motion, this pitching motion that he had, but part of his pitching philosophy was, um, put the ball on the ground, let your defenders get out. So yeah, he, he, he wasn't afraid to walk people. He's like, well, if, if, if what I have, this guy's going to hit out of the park, I'll pitch around him, see if I can get him to swing at something stupid. So his philosophy was let people get on base. That's why you have defenders. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Uh, That's kind of incredible. But he, he was wildly successful. I'm pretty sure at the, still now he holds the National League and American League record for most games by a reliever. When he was in Minnesota, I think he got up to 91 in the American League. Um <laughs> I believe you are correct. Uh, 92. 92. Which, yeah, in, if in Francona has Brian Shaw for an entire season, he might have Brian Shaw break that record. <laughs> <laughs> it could be interesting. Yep. That's awesome. Mike Marshall is another one of those in, very, very interesting people. That uh, He he was uh, quite a conundrum, and uh, not a lot of people liked him for Usually good reason. I, I, yeah. he was always nice enough to me. <laughs> I, I would ask him questions and if he didn't respond, I knew the answer was written down somewhere and I had to find it. Uh, but he was, he, he I think it was genuine in the fact that he never wanted a pitcher to ever get hurt again. Mm. Uh, so, and I think even the driveline guys, um, uh, talk about him and have dealt with him and, uh, you know, r- r- believed in some of the things he did, but still said he's a pain in the ass. <laughs> good stuff. Good stuff. Well, I could do this all day. This is, this has been legitimately one of the most fascinating interviews I've done for on the list, but the show must end eventually, and before it does, we need to answer some questions for our mailbag. All right. So, a large portion of our podcast here is devoted to answering your questions on the air. So, if you have questions for me and my guest, send them over to me on Twitter. I am at Bristowski, or better yet, join our PL Plus Discord server. We'd be happy to grade your trades, offer analysis on players you're wondering about, or answer any other number of inquiries. Our first question here comes from our good buddy, Daniel Port. Given the historical lens through which you see baseball, 
what is your perfect version of the game? You know, I think any version I happen to be watching is the perfect version. I I don't get too much about... Well, I've only seen baseball, been able to watch it from the 70s on. Sure. Uh, I've seen some games uh, that happen to be video to that of, of older eras. Um, but all of them, you know, and some of them are filmed so badly, it looks like they're running around like the Three Stooges. I just, I like baseball. For me, baseball is almost the perfect game. Uh, I can sit and I can watch it or I can listen to it. Uh, and I I don't really care what the rules are. <laughs> uh, but I, I think I would have loved to watch it back um, like when Cy Young was a pitcher and you had yeah. old, you know, all of these old guys that were just pitching 600 innings in a game. And, and just, I th- think I'm sort of with Walt Whitman on that, that if they would have played without leagues, it would have been great. It would have just been, you know, sand, sandlot ball and everything like that. If I really want to get romantic about baseball, I would really love to see the game back then. But then I played in a little league and I think I've seen it. <laughs> I just happened to be participating. So, uh, in a lot of cases, I know people get really upset about the rules changes, but if you go back, the rules have changed almost every year. Um, and some of it's good, some of it's bad. But, uh, you know, if you go back and look when pitchers originally started, they had to go to the pitcher or go to the batter and say, excuse me, young man, would you like the ball high or low? <laughs> and then they would throw it underhand without break, without whipping up their wrist and have to throw the ball where the young man wanted it so he could hit it as far as he could. And then you could also get a man out by throwing the ball in his back. <laughs> it's like dodgeball. <laughs> yeah. Basically, you, know, you, you could have physical assault on the field and not complain about it. So they eventually changed it to where the pitcher actually had to throw the ball and they could throw a curved ball. Um, so I, the game for moves on and I think the game's going to continue to move on. Um, and, and to me, if I was sat down in 1910 and had to watch a game versus if I was sitting down with my dad and my son and we were watching the guardians, that's going to be the perfect game. Uh, to me, especially watching baseball live, you know, being there at there, it's, it's about who you're with um, and just enjoying four hours with people. Absolutely. People you may not know. I, I've, when I was a season ticket holder, when I lived in Cleveland, when I lived in Cleveland, I was a season ticket holder. I, I, I had more fun just having one single ticket that I would go to about twenty games a year, and just I had more fun with the people around me um, than you know ever going to a bar and meeting people or anything like that. So the That's perfect awesome. game is the one you're watching. I love that. That is a that is a very. Uh philosophical answer from a philosophical man (laughs) now when i was asking you a few questions about yourself uh prior to our recording you mentioned that most of the baseball you consume is actually through the radio Uh, you listen to the vast majority of your games rather than watch them on tv and so david fenko another one of our staffers here was asking who do you think is the best radio play-by-play team? 
Well, I'm gonna have to go with Tommy, uh, Hammy, and uh, uh, Jim Rosenstein for uh, Rosenstein for the Indians. Uh, they it, they are it. my home team, and I fully admit to being a homer when it comes to baseball stuff. But I guess I I do listen to other games. If there, there, there's some player that people are talking about, I like to listen to hometown teams, uh, except for. The Chicago White Sox team, I just cannot listen. Um, I'm, I'm sorry. Um, I've tried to. They're ter- I, I just they they don't mesh with me. But um, uh, the the Giants, who have John Miller, uh, is is really good. And um, I, I will still listen to the Mo- Milwaukee Brewers because you, you do have Bob Uecker there. Yep. He, he's at the low. He's at the end of his career. Um, but he still does a nice job, nice job. And the Brewers do a nice job, um, on there. Uh, uh, the Texas guys, and I have my notes up because I'm, I'm going to look at my notes. Oh, absolutely. I have been taking notes, uh, about so many of these things. Uh, but in Texas, I really want to say you got, uh, it's, uh, yeah, Ed, uh, Eric, Eric now they, they do a nice job too. Um, I, for me, when I like to listen to it, I like to hear about, you know, I, I tend not to listen to the national teams. I'd rather listen to the hometown teams. Sure. Uh, and part of that is because in going in Cleveland, I, I, I had the chance to listen to like Nev Chandler, Joe Tate, who was a, an awesome basketball announcer, and Herb Score. And, you know, have, now I have Tom Hamilton and uh, we have Doug Deacon and uh, Jimmy Donovan for the Browns, it, it's nice how much they talk about the town and, you know, they cater to the fans. It's part of their job. So I like yeah. listening to how some of these people cater to the fans, talk about the history, um, and even be critical. And most of the people I've mentioned will be critical of their hometown team. Sure. They're, they're, they're homers. That's part of their job. <laughs> you know, they work yeah. for the team. They're not an independent study here um so i uh yeah i think those guys do a, a really good job I, I euchre is he is not harry doyle from major league when you listen to him he's yep. a very good announcer who can be funny um but he he's a really good announcer but I, I i would put hamilton especially when there's a home run oh yeah he has some of the best calls and our he was uh, at, at a same Saber conference. I met Dwayne Kuyper. Um, Tom Hamilton was there, which is funny because he lives in the same town I live in. Yeah, I, w- I just <laughs> saw that. I was looking him up and I saw that he lives in Avon Lake. I was like, have you met this guy? I've uh, met him twice, but one time my my son heard his voice. And so my son knows Tom Hamilton's voice. Yeah. Most of the radio. He goes, you're the guy that makes my dad like laugh and cry and say bad words. <laughs> And my son was like two. Um, other, That's like, perfect. Always nice to have me to fan. Uh, <laughs> but at this conference, somebody asked him to do a home run call, and he goes, "I can't. It's all organic, I, you know." Yeah. Even if I believe it, and he he's got excited when somebody like the opposing team hit a home run, just because it was so dramatic. He's and it's way back. And he, he doesn't care. You know, it's like do that and I, he's got some of the best calls but i oh yeah um i remember when uh herb score retired tom hamilton was taking over and 
Herb Score was the main primary, and Tom Hamilton was the secondary. He was moving up to be there. And they gave an interview, um, and you can just tell how much Tom Hamilton cared uh, about Herb Score and how much he learned from him. And then in 2016, Indians or Cleveland was up three to one against the Cubs. And he gave an inter- Tom Hamilton gave this interview that he went, he was in Chicago and he's like, uh, what am I going to say if they win? <laughs> and just him going through the process of, he goes, hmm. I-, I need to keep it organic, but what the hell am I going to say? <laughs> you know, it, 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 and I think that's what those hometown announcers mean. That's just, which is why I like to listen to them. That, I love it. You know, they're like, "What am I going to do? What am I going to say?" I, I think a lot of them are organic and try to keep players in there, and that's why I like to uh, to listen to the radio. Plus, I'm so busy most of the time. If I'm building them a guitar, a guitar I don't want to be looking up and seeing what's going on. Sure, I want to hear somebody tell me what's going on because I want to keep all my fingers. That's awesome. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I don't listen to a ton of radio stuff. Usually I, I do like to have the game on. So if something interesting happens, I can look over and do something like that. Cause luckily I don't work with saws. Um, the Atlanta team, Jim Powell does a great job. Unfortunately, he does have to work with Joe Simpson, which is a rough gig. Um, not a fan of Joe. I, uh, was, Pretty pleased when Atlanta decided to put uh, Jeff Francoeur in the box with Chip Carey for the uh, TV broadcast. (laughs) Those two do a great job. Big fan of Chip and Jeff. But Jim Powell does a fantastic job for Atlanta. Now, our next question here was from uh, another of our staffers. Justin Paradis wants to know, what is the worst unwritten rule in baseball? Any rule that tells players not to play. Um, expand. Expand. Uh, I want to know and I, well, how many no-hitters became no-hitters because somebody wouldn't bunt to get on the first base because that was an unwritten rule. Uh, I want to know how many home runs were lost because you were up by seven and you had a 3-0 count and the guy threw – a very slow fastball right down the center of the plate. The, those are the things that I, uh, unwritten rules that I think have just changed the game too much, too yeah. much because you're telling people not to try as hard as they can. It, it, it's so counterintuitive to what you say, to, to what right. we tell people. You know, try as hard, do anything. Oh, I'm sorry, you're up by ten and it's three zero or three. And, you know, we threw one down the plate and he hit it out. Oh, well. And the perfect proof that that's not, shouldn't be a rule. I watched an old timers game. Bob Feller was pitching against Hank Aaron. It was a 3-0 count. You know what Hank Aaron did? He swung on 3-0 and hit a home run. (laughs) So it's not, it's an unwritten rule because people are stupid. And that, that's what I don't, especially with when it comes with no hitters or things like that. And especially now when players, if you hit 50 home runs, you know, or, or something like that, you have an incentive and things like that. We're telling people, well, don't do it. Don't try to get paid. At least not in my account. That That's what I don't like. I think the unwritten rules, 
there's enough rules in baseball. We don't need unwritten ones. Yeah. Um, and on the note of getting paid, it's fascinating when you enter the uh, little wrinkle that one home run could mean literally thousands of dollars in the arbitration process. So the arbitration process is so jacked up in the first place (laughs) that it's, that's its own discussion, but it's all based off of your production on the field. And if you hit the, the difference between, you know, 19 home runs and 20 home runs, that is a difference. So yeah, I, I have to agree. Anytime that we are, generally encouraging someone to uh, not play up to their potential or even worse when we're like, well, this guy disrespected us. So now I'm going to throw a, a rock hard object at him faster than a speeding train. Yeah. That's also not a great idea. Let's not physically injure people were yeah, that children that that that's a big one because then that comes down to kids i remember when i played um you know and they say well you know you should throw it i'm like i don't want to i can throw pretty fast and <laughs> yeah like i don't want to hurt somebody and a, a lot of times i don't know where the ball is going so <laughs> i mean i was already throwing a spitball when i was in little league so I don't don't know how much more cheating I wanted to do. That's awesome. (laughs) Did have a couple questions about a couple of your guardians here to finish it out. Estavo Maximo wants to know what your expectations are for Anthony Ghost over a full season. Coming back now as a pitcher. He is an interesting guy. He was a positional player. He's coming back as a pitcher. Uh, He seems to have pretty good speed. Uh, very good velocity, and he only pitched, I think, maybe less than 10 innings last year. But it, I'm always rooting for somebody that just decides, you know what, I'm not hacking it uh, as a as a positional player, so I'm, I'm going to give this uh, pitching a try. And I think he's in the right spot to do it. Cleveland is really good at developing um, what talent a person has, I guess is the best way to put it. I agree. They're not going to make you throw 100 miles per hour, but they're going to make you best use of the pitches that you have. And I'm rooting for the guy. I, I, you know, I, I hope he does well. I think he'll do well. He looks to be pretty good. Um, but you never know when you have a 30-year-old guy that's trying to pitch. Yeah. It, it's going to be hit or miss. I, I hope he does well. I really do. Um, I'd love to have him around, you know, have this type of story that you're going on with there. And uh, maybe Tom Hanks can start as coach when they, if they make a movie about him. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. He's the, he's the reverse Rick Ankeel. Yes. Yes. Well, the reverse uh, John Ward too. John Montgomery, yeah. Montgomery Ward. <laughs> and then uh man who's come up now thrice, Chad Young uh, <laughs> wants to know, you know, is Stephen Kwan the most exciting player in baseball history? No, not when he's on just the, yes or no. Not when he's on the same team as uh, Jose Ramirez. That's fair. <laughs> <laughs> I have not seen uh, Khan have the helmet come off his head and hit him in, come off his head and hit him in the head by sliding a second base. When he does that, 
he can be the most interesting player in the league. But I do like how Con Mugging and he 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 just seems like such a nice story. Um, just uh, I I read something about him where basically his mom got in his case for being lazy, and he stopped being lazy at some point. I'm like, hey, we've all been there. <laughs> I mean, he seems like he's going to be a great player for you guys. Contact first. Uh, hitter with a very good glove. Yeah. Uh, and that diving catch he made, what was it, yesterday? Yeah, yesterday, yeah. coming in. Uh, and the fact that I think what's most impressive is that Francona, who, as I said, you know, said before, likes to keep younger players down in the minors for that first year, right. you know, came up to him, brought him into the office, you know, and told him, hey, you know, you made the team, you're, you're you're going to be in there and then just started starting him. So he's not sitting, he's in there, he's playing, he's out there. So I have to believe that Francona believes in him, which is a big boost, but you know, I, I like that he's contact. He gets there, that diving catch. Um, and he just in some of the interviews and things that I see, and he just seems to enjoy playing baseball, which is what I always love to see. Absolutely. Gotta love it. <laughs> Well, all righty. I think that just about does it for us. Matt, any uh, any closing thoughts for us here? Anything you want to plug? Uh, uh, well, I'll just um, uh, follow me on Twitter. I, I'm trying to write 250 words about everybody that's ever played baseball in any way, shape, or form. And I tweet those messages in the morning uh, at some point in time when I get some coffee. Uh, so follow me for that. If anybody wants... Uh, wants to find something interesting about something about baseball and you're having trouble, feel free to come up and ping me. Um, I will try to find the right seat resources or use it as an article. Um, <laughs> I will uh, to get the information out for you. I'll do the research and write an article for you if I have to. Absolutely. Um, and um, I just encourage people to go out and learn a little bit more about your hometown team that you like um, and find out some unique history if you talk to people that like the press people or anything for, for your team, they, they have daily tidbits that they give people in the press box. If you ask, you can probably get a copy of those. Um, which awesome. some of the neat stuff I've learned has been from those little press releases. Uh, so I encourage people to do that. Um, and uh, just, you know, come out and harass me if ever you want to know something. And if I don't know it, um, I'll make something up that sounds really plausible. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. Well, one more time, where can the people find you on Twitter? It's at Sid Finch. Very good. Well, Matt, thank you so much for joining me. And thank you all for listening. This has been On The List. <laughs>